and welcome to The Discourse, a short-form, one-on-one interview podcast with filmmakers, actors, and other industry folks, brought to you by The Playlist and hosted by myself, Mike D'Angelo. Today, I got to sit down with someone who I have admired for a long time now, and that's actor, director, writer, Joel Edgerton. Joel, you may know from films like Warrior with Tom Hardy, The Gift, which he also directed, uh, The Great Gatsby, Bright... Loving, 13 Lives was a recent one. Midnight Special is one of my favorites. He's Uncle Owen in the Star Wars prequels and the Obi-Wan series. He's great in everything he does. And the film he's currently out promoting is No Different, which is Master Gardener. It's a Paul Schrader film. Paul is a director and writer that's really in his own category and lane. You may know some of his classics like uh, Raging Bull or Taxi Driver or American Gigolo. Master Gardener is the final entry in a sort of spiritual trilogy that's being called the Man in a Room trilogy, which is first reformed with Ethan Hawke, The Card Counter with Oscar Isaac, and Master Gardener with Joel Edgerton. All three of these films are very, very much worth your time and really tackle some difficult questions. Master Gardener in particular follows a meticulous gardener who devotes his time to tending the grounds of an old plantation estate and tending to the needs of the owner and you slowly realize more and more details about his past and when a new person is assigned to working under him the film also stars sigourney weaver and quintessa swindell we talk about master gardener in the interview but the film is an excellent rumination about the sins of the past and the possibility of redemption. And even for someone you might see as the worst in humanity, there's a lot of outstanding metaphors that the the gardening and the soil and the plantation and certainly ideologies that all really work together. Joel is so, so good as this like almost militarily precise gardener and the writing is top-notch. Schrader somehow makes gardening fascinating. Uh, Sigourney Weaver has a great multi-layered part that she really knocks out of the park. Quintessa Swindell is excellent. Uh, if you haven't seen any of the Man in a Room trilogy, again, you're just going to delve into some dark, deep questions with great performances. I highly recommend all three, First Reform, The Card Counter, and Master Gardener, which is in limited theaters now. Before I shoot you over to the interview, I've got to tell you that the discourse is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which includes the Playlist Podcast, Bingeworthy, Deep Focus, Yellowstoners, and more. We can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find your favorite shows. Be sure to subscribe and drop us a comment or a rating as we do very much appreciate it. Or just head on over to theplaylist.net for film and TV news and reviews, interviews, all that stuff. Okay, here's my wide-ranging conversation with the absurdly talented and very kind Joel Edgerton. Absolutely wonderful to speak with you today. I've been a longtime fan. Master Gardener is excellent. So even more of a pleasure to speak with you. I guess let's just start from the beginning as far as your Master Gardener journey goes. Paul Schrader, he's been out there doing a lot of interviews. I've I've been listening to a lot of them this week just because he's out promoting it as well. I'd love to hear just kind of from your end of things, why you jumped onto this and what ultimately led you to really dive into the project. Was it just the Paul of it all or was there something else to it? Well, definitely the Paul of it all. I, you know, I, I have a feeling that if Paul had said to me in his initial conversation, look, I can't give you the script. I just need you to say whether you do the film. And I probably just would have said yes. And not not because I'm naive or desperate, because I love him as a filmmaker and particularly, you know, yes, all of his history of 
his filmography for sure, but in particular, I, the the film First Reformed made a made a very mm. strong on me. I was living in New York when it came out. I went to the Angelica in the first week that it was playing. I'd been very kind of buzzed about it coming out because of the trailer and stuff I'd read, and it delivered even a, a greater experience for me than I was expecting. Um, so to then a few years later, kind of in the midst of COVID lockdown in Australia, to sort of get a phone call from Paul to be front and centre in his next film, which was going to be a part of a trilogy of that started with First Reform. I was kind of, I was flattered, absolutely flattered, and I was um, just sort of willing to dive in. And of course, you know, if he's going to show me the script, of course I was going to read <laughs> read it. But I would have said yes. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a legend. He's made some absolute fucking classics. So yeah, it's hard to say no to Paul Schrader. But what's he like just to work with once you get there? Was there something that made you go, oh, this is why he's Paul Schrader? You know, I was gonna, I was just about to say, and I'm glad you asked that question because I I feel like I got so much out of this experience, not not just as an actor, but as the future of my filmmaking. I always sort of watch other directors, how they do things, how they conduct themselves, how they make choices and why they make choices and try and learn from all those experiences. Look, I think there's a bunch of ingredients that go into making Paul who he is and as excellent as he is. Um, and some of them, we won't even know what those ingredients are. I think it's just a supreme darkness and intelligence to him in certain measures. And this is sort of a, an unanswered question maybe that he keeps coming back to about, you know, this, this, these running themes that he keeps dancing around and that keep evolving ever slowly. But there's this feeling like he's riffing on the same stuff a lot, but with different characters, different versions of a similar character. And, but as a filmmaker, he's incredibly precise and efficient. And I think it's in his writing, it's efficient and clear and confident. And that crosses into how he chooses to cover a scene and how he, you know, shoots and how he communicates with actors. It feels very direct and confident and self-assured and um, and lean. And he's like an old school filmmaker because he's shooting a scene as though he's already roughly cut it together in his head before he shot it. He's not like shooting tons and tons of material and working it out in the edit room. He knows how he wants a scene to look and move and feel. Yeah, that was one of the things where you're, especially this movie of the trilogy, he's making these little jumps, these little gaps in time where there are either, you know, gaps that you're going to have to fill in or lingering questions that he wants you to have. Did you talk to Paul about where Narvel's turning point was when he went from like one side to the other? Because that's one of those gaps where I was just like, hmm. Wonder if they even shot it, or if they just want people to to kind of gather it for themselves. I think what you're talking about is, you know, that there's a, a history to novel. You know, in Paul's trilogies, talking about um, a character that that sort of is hiding behind a day job, or is you know, in this case, hiding behind a day job, and and that we come to learn of a a really sinister, dark past that's rooted in white nationalism and violence regarding that, and that some years later we're starting the film with this character running, uh, you know, he's a horticulturalist, he's running garden and he's sort of, you know, turned over a new leaf. Mm -hmm. 
it's a mawkish pun, but <laughs> the, um, the, there's there are definite gaps there, and I think it speaks to Paul's filmmaking. He's like, oh, well, you work it out. Sigourney was relating a story about Oscar Isaac wondering why he's wrapping furniture in in material in in the card counter. Like, why why is he doing that? Paul's like, well, you choose. You know, is this this you choose you decide aspect of Paul's um, contract with an audience, which is like, I'm going to give you a certain amount. I'm not going to hold your hand through everything, but you get to participate in the choices of why you think certain things have happened. There's little clues of Narvel talking about his evolution of saying, you know, he learnt certain things about, you know, racism from other Mm -hmm. people. It's how we, how human beings evolve into being bigots as we learn those ideas from other people. But where is it that Narvel turns is something I think that's there's a tiny clue in the film, but it's there for the audience to also, you know, imagine that when you have guilt and past and drug history and wrapped up in that, that there can be an awakening and it could take any number of forms or details. I imagine my own version of that. Okay. So you're not necessarily having conversations with Paul where you're like, what, where was this point for him? You're kind of doing this on your own. We definitely had a conversation about that, that that it comes from, you know, the cataclysmic kind of seismic event of of um, committing a certain murder, which you will see in a flashback mm. in the movie, and being torn away from family and being put through, you know, dealing with the de- dealing with the law and the ramifications of the consequences of his actions, um, but really having a, a child torn away from him. And that what that isolation and contemplation might do for a person. Ooh. Okay. So was that kind of your entry point when it came to empathizing with him? Or was there other points where you're like, this is really important for me to kind of grasp onto him? I, th- I think there's a, um, for me, there was a real anchor of going, you know, I luckily have never committed any offense or done anything in my life that in that moment I went, oh, my God, now my life is irreversibly changed. And we read about those events in the newspaper every day and I, and they really strike me, you know, people doing things where they, you know, awful, awful things and you realise they've got to continue to live on planet Earth, got to continue to be maybe part of society even if they go to jail for a time. They have to live with a certain thing or a certain series of actions for the rest of their life and how do you reconcile that? And as much as I'll still judge the action of the person or the event, part of me starts to imagine what it would be like to live inside the brain of a person who who wakes up every day going, I did that thing and I'll always mm. on my um on my conscience or in this case on my skin. Um and how that must feel. And do we have the right to continue to be part of the human race if in the margins of our life we do something like the terrible, whatever, insert terrible event? or And usually that's the, the destruction of other human life, I think, or tr- yeah. putting tr- a child, for example. I think that who deserves to be part, part of society? Uh, and if you don't, what are the options? Do you become a hermit? Do you commit suicide? Do you? Or in Narvel's case, do you pretend it never existed to a certain degree um, and hide away somewhere? The interesting part of of what Paul has been talking about with this in comparison to the rest of the, uh, what is it, the Lonely Man in a Room trilogy or whatever it is? 
is it, obviously they they share DNA with this, but this one he says more than anything is a fable. Did you two discuss, you know, why he's he's thinking of it in that way, and and maybe some of the things he was changing to make it that way? Yeah, I, I really hit home for me when Paul discussed the relationship between my character and and Maya, Quintessa's character, as a potentially impossible or implausible relationship. Now, of course, that there would be versions of this relationship that have happened in terms of like an ex-white nationalist sort of forming a relationship with a um, a person of colour or, or someone they used to sort of vilify, you know, um, pure poor hatred upon. But there's almost an essay-like debate-like quality to the building of that relationship in this film. It's like even though we're there to watch it as a, as a, a real-life um no narrative kind of real life relationship play out. It's also there as a debate, as as a, as a question in my mind about uh, who deserves the chance to regrow and be reborn and to be forgiven, um, and who chooses redemption. And of course, what's interesting is that you know, we I could choose to to view someone else's life, choose whether I I feel like they deserve to be redeemed. I also you know, it comes down to a person within themselves to choose whether they deserve their own redemption. But when an intimate relationship occurs between two human beings, is this question of how much needs to be revealed or shared. And if everything needs to be disclosed, if everything's on the table, then have you already destroyed a relationship mm. before it's had a chance to flourish because of things you've done in your past? Yeah. And then there's all these, you know, the the plantation metaphors and Sigourney has this sinister kind of thing going on. <laughs> Just working with her in general, I'm sure it was, you've worked with some heavy hitters and <laughs> have become a heavy hitter yourself. Um, <laughs> but working with Sigourney Weaver, she's been around for a long time. So when you're working with someone like her, how quickly are you able to like <laughs> stop going that's Sigourney freaking Weaver. That's Ripley or whatever that is. I've always had this uh, uh, good ability to to sort of uh, switch off my uh, fan button. Strangely enough, you know, I really admire actors and I get excited about the chance to work with certain actors. It's more like I, I don't get fearful of it, but I see it as a great opportunity to learn something and to to partner up with somebody who will uh, no doubt make me more focused and hopefully better. People I really fan out on are sports people. Yeah. Childhood of worshipping football players in Australia and and whatever. But, look, it's a, it's a great honour to be able to work with someone special like Sigourney or other people I've worked with in the past. And it just makes you kind of, you know, string your racket properly and tie your, your tennis shoes up properly and, and hope that it makes your game better. I would be uh, very remiss if I was interviewing you and I didn't bring up how much I fucking love Warrior. Um, I, I adore that movie. I've interviewed Frank Grillo a couple times about it. I've talked to Gavin O'Connor about it on the 10th anniversary. I think that was a couple years ago. It's probably like 12 years now. Um, yeah. But I just adore how much of like a heightened Rocky-esque fight movie that is. Plus there's that emotional like father-son story and the brother story. It just makes it so emotionally impactful. How do you look back on that movie a dozen years later? And, and did you learn anything on that one that you still take through to this day? Tons, man. I could talk about Warrior for days. 
feel like there was a certain confluent, there was a certain, certain series of things that happened that allowed Tom and I to be part of that movie. You know, the, the amount of training that was involved, I think, you know, Gavin wanted two fresh faces, relatively fresh faces that were willing to put in the work. And I'll always, always look back on that experience as one of the hardest working experiences I've ever had, one of the most rewarding ones, and the result of it being far better than I ever expected. And part of that is because Gavin O'Connor's um, mandate to to make movies where he brings in experts, you know, brought in fighters into the edit room. He brought in, yeah. you know, he created this sort of camp where where the authenticity, and he did it with Pride and Glory. He's done it with other films where he's like, all right, if I'm telling a story about a certain thing, I'm going to bring people who know about that thing into the fold, which is a great thing to know. What's a great thing to sort of remember into the future about other stories for myself. But one thing I remember, it's a specific thing that Gavin did. You know, when you, when you make movies, there are certain scenes that you look ahead to as an actor and you go, these are the four pivotal big scenes and I'm going to put all my energy into that and I'm going to lose sleep over whether I'm going to do that. And after you've shot them, you're like, please, I hope that that was good. I remember we were shooting a scene with Frank and I in the change rooms, in the dressing rooms, before I go on to do my first fight. And it was like one-eighth of a page. And it was literally just, you know, the official coming in and saying five minutes. Gavin cleared the room and he said, all right, we have a chance to make this the best scene in the film. <laughs> you have a chance to make every single scene in your film as good as the four or five scenes that you think are going to be the big scene. And he said, what is this scene really about? And if we can't find a reason to make it special, we shouldn't shoot it. And, you know, we didn't waste too much time and we got to the moment. We made it about Frank's character really telling me that it was possible that I could do the thing that I lacked the confidence to do rather than just the guy coming in and going five minutes. I remember thinking that is the way that everybody should look at every single page and every word on a, on a screenplay is that everything is of equal importance. Absolutely. That and like I heard like Nolte would walk around with a binder on his character. Like he mm. just had a whole binder full of stuff that he just accessed at any point in time. Yeah, it's insane. Like a real submersion in that film that um, you don't often get. Yeah, pretty crazy. Also, it was wonderful to, to see you pop up and unexpected to see you pop up as Uncle Owen and Obi-Wan. Was there any hesitation to jump back into that world or just be and just be like why do you why do you want more uncle owen or were you like yeah let's let's just do this right yeah now. i remember thinking like if i don't pop up who's gonna pop up in my place <laughs> that's true he said back on wait on a second what are you doing there look to be honest it was definite hesitation I, you know and part of it is because you know i've never really been too much of a sort of a sequel or you know never really done like ongoing television and part of it is because I like each challenge to be unique and each experience it has a certain, you know, you come together and you make a film or, or a short series and, and it's its own thing. And then when it's over, you move on and you find a new challenge, a new thing to explore. And I don't want to be snobbish about it, but I often feel like sequels are often made just so a bunch of people higher up can make a lot of money. But where's the challenge for the actor? You know, what, what, what's the new thing that I get to do? And I remember thinking that briefly about 
coming back to be on Cologne. But then I was like, well, this is a chance for me to get it right because I was 25 or six at the time. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd only really worked in the theatre and done a couple of small roles in films and I was terrified. Um, So the whole thing was a bit of a blur. And here I was getting a chance to A, sort of say thank you to Lucasfilm and George and everyone there for for handing me a bit of a chance to break open the doors of Hollywood Um, and to come back a bit more of a mature actor with a bit more confidence of knowing how I go about things, not to say that I know everything. I still feel like I'm I'm on a massive journey of discovery every time I work, but I feel more confident now. And yeah. I felt like it's a reunion with Ewan and Hayden and all those guys. And I was like, I shouldn't question this at all, even if there's not necessarily some big meaty challenges and actor. It's like, and I had a fantastic time, man. Yeah. Just coming out of COVID, we're in LA, we're shooting in this quarry and um, director Deb was amazing. The whole team were incredible and it was a pleasure to be back at work and it was a pleasure to be back at work feeling like I was sort of completing my own little psychological circle in a way. Yeah, you've also got, I know you said you weren't going to, you weren't really interested in, in TV as much, but you got Dark Matter coming up, which is a TV series for Apple TV Plus and I love what they're doing in the sci-fi uh, area actually they just got a lot of good shows in general i was wondering one what you can tease there and then you have george clooney's uh the boys in the boat yeah yeah what can you what can you tease on those i will say about tv is like for me being a film snob you know i realized that post pandemic i was like most of what i've been watching is television yeah a lot of it is really good the writing is really good. You get to understand character better over a longer period of time and you get to explore. If you're an actor, you get to explore it over a longer canvas of time. And Dark Matter I read and was so excited by the material and I remember thinking if you squeeze this into a film, it's probably not going to be as good. So, yeah, we just finished shooting that. I end up playing 28, I think, different versions of the same person. Nice. Uh, uh, so... <laughs> Should be interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, it was it was fascinating to do, and um, really great team. I think it'll be excellent. I, you know, we we certainly did everything we could every day to make sure that it was excellent. And Apple, I think, are making incredible material and sophisticated looking material. It's very um, much the question of uh, the life you didn't live and going back to the fork in the road. And what what if you had a chance to slide sideways? take over the life that you thought you didn't want, but now that maybe you thought you did, you know, questions of uh, the grass is greener. And I also refer to it as uh, the multiverse for the middle-aged man. <laughs> a lot of the you know, multiverse is a bit of a, a hot thing at the moment. And yeah, questions of the plausibility of uh, quantum mechanics and the multiverse. And But like rather than this being dressed up with superheroes and special effects, heavy it's very much like a normal guy coming up against this prospect of taking of having his life taken away and realizing that he's had his life taken away by someone that may be himself and how do you get back Mm. and what questions does it raise about how complacent you become in your life and um you don't know what you uh you really had until it's been taken away from you um and also what you dreamed you thought you wanted on the other side of things is what 
what you dreamed you thought would be a great life. It's like, what is all that if you didn't have family and you didn't have love? And two versions of the same character sort of uh, end up being flipped under a certain circumstance that creates in its uh, speculative sci-fi world real questions about who we are, what we want, what we expect of ourselves and what we hoped for and what we didn't get and the life we didn't lead, the life we didn't choose. Mm. Yeah, 1,000% sold. Boys in the Boat is an easy one because it's a cracker. It's, um, look, you know, talking about Warrior, who who doesn't like a good sports success story? And the Boys in the Boat, even though I wasn't really familiar with the world of rowing, I obviously knew what rowing was. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know the ins and outs of it like I do now, but... The story within Boys in the Boat is one of the great, you know, rowing stories of triumph and it's well done. It's, we all look pretty good because we're dressed in, uh, you know, 1920s clothes. And George is a, you know, great, excellent dude and a great director. And and so I got really good hopes for that film. It's it's a, just a really cool sports triumph story. Yeah. All right, they're going to pull me out of here with a hook, but I just want to thank you again for your time and to say that Master Gardener is excellent. And for our listeners, it's in theaters now, so go see it. Joel's outstanding in it. Uh, Really, truly appreciate it. All right. Thanks, man. 